sometimes an infestation of parasites is so thorough and overwhelming that the host doesn't even get to keep its original name. In part one of today's episode, we explore the recent creation and destructive history of the word Judeo-Christian. I'm Darren Kalama, and this is the First Bible Network. Deconstructing the past to help you make sense of today. Time for another award-winning episode of Pre-Nicene Perspective with your host, Darren Kalama. Given how many famous people, institutions, presidents, religious leaders, social icons, and celebrities have invoked the name Judeo-Christian, you'd think it's been around for thousands of years, millennia, at least since the time of Jesus. It has such weight, bearing, power, and gravitas. Such a rapturous name surely must be the cornerstone of a great and historic spiritual awakening. Yeah, no, not really. In terms of religious significance, it's somewhere in the same zip code with Kwanzaa, and not much older than that. The etymology of the word and its earliest known use was in the 19th century, where it first appears in a letter from Alexander McCall. Don't worry, nobody else knows who he is either. The term in this case referred to alleged Jewish converts to Christianity, or conversos. Also around this time, the word Judeo was being slapped around on just about everything. Names like Judeo-German, Judeo-Italian, Judeo-French were commonly used to describe various things related to Jews. It was part of a growing movement to make Jews appear to be less alien, to mainstream them into society, and language was one way to do that. And such became the case also with the name Judeo-Christian. Now, it's interesting to note that the same people selling this new name are also big on talking about the, or what they call the Abrahamic faith, in which Islam is also a part of. Yet, the word isn't Judeo-Christian-Islamic or Christian-Judeo-Islamic, and it's especially not Islamic-Christian-Judeo. The name says, hey... We're part of a team, and you other people, you Islamists or Hindus, you might be okay, but we're running the God show around here. You see, the Jews like having their name first, you know, top billing, despite being such a tiny, insignificant fragment of the world's total population. One is reminded of the midget perched on top of a giant in the Mad Max Thunderdome movie. So the name excludes other religions while at the same time allowing Jews to dominate the headline in a story that's really about parasites and hosts. Some people were also using it to describe a type of Christianity that rejected the teachings and writings of the Apostle Paul. They liked the word Judeo-Christian because, in their mind, it helped blend Judaism and Christianity together, while at the same time signaling their opposition to Paul, who they felt was unfriendly to the Jews. Now, a few years after McCall's letter, a strange historical figure got a hold of the word. His name was Joseph Wolfe, and in 1829 he began marketing the word as a tool for Messianic Jews and Adventists to use. These churches would maintain 
many Jewish and Ibionite traditions, while again excluding many of Paul's epistles. Essentially, a lot more Yeshua and a lot less Jesus. Now, like the Ebionites and other Judaizers before them, they relied heavily on the Gospel of Matthew with its opening paragraphs that read like a guest list from a bar mitzvah. Now, for an example of what I'm talking about, look at any of the evangelical preachers of today wearing their Hebrew prayer shawls as they endlessly talk about Yeshua and Yahweh while barely ever mentioning the name Jesus Christ on their made-for-TV masses. John Hagee, Franklin Graham, Falwell, these guys are the vision that Joseph Wolfe was trying to achieve back in 1829. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, because Wolfe turns out to be actually pretty interesting. In fact, you might agree that he's the personification of, the poster boy, for the marketing slogan, Judeo-Christian and all that it represents. Now, naturally, kicking over the woodpile and clicking on early life sets the tone for our little journey here. Wolf was born to Jewish parents. His father, David, was a rabbi in Germany. According to his bio, he developed a great interest in Jesus Christ. Uh, this was as a child, and at age 11, he left home. And he spent the next six years traveling Europe and meeting with teachers and theologians to learn more. Now, his bio goes on to claim he became a Roman Catholic in 1812, and he took on the name Joseph. Whatever his original given Jewish name was is not mentioned. Now, by the way, I'm going to include some slow-roll video of his bio so you can kind of follow along and make your own decisions. Four years later, he moved to Rome and began studying to be a missionary at the Jesuit-run Collegio Romano. He was there for a couple of years before being physically expelled by the gendarmes for disrupting the school and questioning the doctrine of infallibility. He left Italy and decided to become a member of the Church of England after meeting a couple of prominent Adventists who took him in. From there, he went on to train as a missionary at Cambridge University at the expense of the London Society for Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews. That was the name of it. Now, since renamed, its main goal was encouraging the Hebrew Christian slash Messianic Jewish movement, and their main goal was injecting and mixing Judaism into Christianity. Wolf also embraced the Millerite Adventist belief, which was popular at the time that the world was ending in 1844. Long story short, he then decided his life's goal was finding out what happened to the lost tribes of Israel, and he traveled around Africa, preaching that the world would be ending in 1844. He wrote a book about his travels, married into a prominent family in England, and managed to mainstream that name Judeo-Christian in a few of the right circles of Messianic Jews on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, the TLDR version of all this is, man shapeshifts from Judaism to Catholicism to the Church of England, changes his name, and spends his entire life subverting Christianity as a Messianic Jew, all the while screaming about the world coming to an end, based on Daniel prophecies in the Hebrew Bible, what you know today as the Old Testament. 
This, my friends, is the epitome of the name Judeo-Christian, and Wolf is its shape-shifting poster boy. Now, unfortunately, because of his writings, contacts, and travels, the name Judeo-Christian didn't die with him in 1862. It rested. It lay under the woodpile hibernating for about a hundred years until a new use for it was found. In short, what was about to happen was that the Messianic Jews were going to shapeshift into a new form, a new skin. This new word would allow them to move among the Christians without sticking out like a sore thumb. Now, let's do a thought experiment. Someone walks up to you and announces, Hey, hi, I'm a Messianic Jew. Think about what your reaction to that is. Now, another person walks up and says, our shared Judeo-Christian beliefs. See how that works? How much more smoother and less jarring that is? The toxic theological poison is just as fatal, but now it has a sweet flavor and the label on the vial has pretty colors on it. Fast forward to the late 1920s to 1930s in America. Although some subversive ideas and elements like the Schofield Bible and Marxism had chipped away a little at the armor of Christianity, it was still very much a Christian country. Jews had their religion and Christians had theirs. Everybody knew where they stood. And the Christians, specifically the Catholics, were enjoying a golden age of power and influence in the sense that from a moral perspective, the ship called America was sailing upright and very stable. But war was brewing on the horizon in Europe, and Americans were very much against getting involved in yet another European war. And the man who was their voice, their champion, was a priest named Father Charles Coughlin. And he wasn't just any voice. Every week, 30 million Americans would hang on his every word, listening to his radio programs. These were numbers that would make Rush Limbaugh look like a disc jockey at a community college radio station in rural Indiana. I mean, Coughlin packed in huge stadiums from end to end. My dear friends, that among other things in the National Union for Social Justice, we are... Christian in so far as we believe in Christ, principle of love your neighbor as yourself. And with that principle, I challenge every Jew in this nation to tell me that he does not believe in it. There is no need of communizing all the factories and the fields and the forests and the mines under a new kind of God made of flesh and blood and clay and hatred. When men become so prideful that they believe their destiny is to rewrite the eternal law of God, it's time for their fellow citizens to rise up in their wrath and through the agency of ballots and not bullets to relegate them to the pages of the past.
oddball. Everybody listened to Father Coughlin, and Father Coughlin was 100% dead set against the war, and he hated Marxists. Frankly, everybody did. People had learned that they had murdered millions and millions of Christian Russians while they operated under the banner or the mask of Bolshevism. These were not popular people. Jews, however, were very much in favor of getting involved in the war and stopping a newly powerful Germany. You see, their friends on the other side of the Atlantic were sounding the alarm bells, begging for help, and they were leaving Germany en masse. Anybody with Marxist ideas and leanings were not welcome in Germany. And that meant Jewish institutions with Marxist leanings like the Frankfurt School were told to hit the road. And they did, packing their bags and landing in the friendly confines of New York City where they set up shop at Columbia University in 1935. As a result, now all the big brains of Judaism and Marxism were all together, and together they took a fresh look at what appeared to be an insurmountable problem. Simply put, they needed a way to turn the ship around, and America was a very, very large ship. They began trying to sway popular opinion through media and books. But how do you bridge the divergent interests and beliefs of Catholics and Jews and then add the complicating factor of another world war on top of it widening the gap further? This was a very tricky problem indeed, to say nothing of Father Coughlin and his 30 million anti-war listeners. Did I mention that even the world-renowned industrialist Henry Ford was against them? And Charles Lindbergh. And just like Joseph Wolff a hundred years ago, these Marxists needed to do some shape-shifting of their own. Instead of being enemies with the Christians and Catholics in America, they needed them now as friends. Friends to fight against their larger, more formidable enemy in the form of a new resurgent Germany. Wait, do you hear that? That rustling sound near the woodpile, something is emerging. Ah, it's our old friend Judeo-Christian. What's he doing here? That's right, Judeo-Christian was born again and began to be used to signify something called the common religious inheritance of the West by left-wing authors in the 1930s. And when I say used... I mean, they plastered it everywhere. They were determined to create that Judeo-Christian connection in the collective mind of America. America must be taught to associate Judeo-Christian with anti-fascism. They had to associate anything good with that new name. Of course, anyone opposed to Judeo-Christian was a Nazi lover, and enemy of America itself is how the narrative was framed and propagandized, and that name was their best way to do it. But to call it a manufactured implied tautology is a massive understatement. The name actually doesn't make any logical sense at all, but when there's a goal, facts don't matter. And their goal was getting America into the war. Long story short, congressmen created and changed laws that drove Father Coughlin off the air, and then the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. That was the end of the anti-war opposition. 
and as you can imagine, there was much celebration and dancing at the Frankfurt School in New York City that day as the ships in Pearl Harbor smoldered and burned. America was finally in their war, and lots and lots of Christians were going to die. Now, before we sign off, I think it's important to point out that the pre-Nicene Christians, like the Marcionites, don't really have a dog in this fight. And of course, it is the Marcionite Church that underwrites the first Bible network and this show. Their faith is based on the very first Christian Bible of 144 AD, and that Bible did not, and to this day does not, contain the Old Testament. Their belief is that Jews worship a deity that is alien to Christianity, and that God was only revealed through Jesus. That to know God, one must know and accept Jesus. There is no other way. Now, beyond the deceptive marketing and slick propaganda of the Judeo-Christian sales force, there are very real consequences at play here. Would you like a Judeo-Christian priest to give you last rites? I mean, what's next? Finding a cute way to combine the words priest and rabbi? Moreover, the present-day Marcionite church believes that Messianic Jews and names like Judeo-Christian are simply movements and constructs designed with the sole purpose of subverting, confusing, toxifying, and destroying true Christianity. It's a goal that they've been working to achieve since the day of Christ's resurrection. But don't take my word for it. Let history be your guide. Now, we're reminded that the apostles had a brief success in shutting down the Judaizers at the Council of Jerusalem in 48 AD, but it was short-lived. Interestingly, you'll find Jews unwittingly in total agreement with the Marcionites as we read in Jacob Neusner's book, Jews and Christians, the Myth of a Common Tradition, in which he writes, the two faiths stand for different people talking about different things to different people. But I think it's best summed up by Rabbi Eliezer Berkovitz, who writes that Judaism is Judaism because it rejects Christianity, and Christianity is Christianity because it rejects Judaism. And we couldn't agree more. Now, because of today's prolonged foray into unpleasant subject matter, I thought it would be a good idea to close out today's show with a short prayer, a, a cleansing prayer, if you will. It's the original Lord's Prayer is found in the first Bible of 144 AD, and you'll find it on page 28 of the paperback or hardcover version, and it's also on page 346 if you're following with the Kindle ebook. Father, let your Holy Spirit come upon us, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us day by day our bread for the coming day. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Amen. In the upcoming segment in part two, we're going to explore how this name Judeo-Christian became a powerhouse in shaping events from the 1950s until today and how it created a new breed of evangelical TV preacher and politicians and ultimately led to the destruction of Western Christianity, the evidence of which is all around you. I'm Darren Kalama, and this is the First Bible Network. You're tuned into PCTV, the authority in pre-Nicene Christian news, history, and analysis. 
Visit pre-nicene.org.